to positions of hopelessness and helplessness. The government gives them the drugs, builds bigger prisons, passes a three-strike law, and then wants us to sing God Bless America. No, no, no. Welcome back to Pod Damn America, the goth socialist podcast for these stupid children. I'm Alex Patak. Hello! Here today with my usual su- suspects and co-hosts at large, Jake Flores. Jake Flores here. And Anders Lee. Anders Lee here. You stole my catchphrase, Jake. I did. Only one and we will be here. looking into that coming up. Good. But I bet you're listening... And you're asking yourself because you haven't read the episode title while well, Jake is here and Anders is here. Who else is here? Well, we have a special surprise for you. Guest on the podcast and author of the Jakarta Method, we have Vincent Bevins today. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Okay, so this is kind of what, what I'm going for here. I'm looking to do a CIA episode. Okay, so it's yeah. the CIA, the Cold War. Who are they? Are they good? Are they bad? Are I mean, they so yeah, bad they, they're good. I mean, I think they're yeah, they're pretty good at you know they're kind of they 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 win all the time you yeah. know like in in the in the really broadest sense you know like they they uh they like they were they were Delta winning hand because they're the secret intelligence and covert action group um, created by the most powerful country in existence. So they had like a lot going for them when they started, but they also racked up a lot of wins throughout the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. And like the, the thing about that position they were in, um, you know, like the Hegemon's um, secret agency is that they could screw up very, very badly. And it didn't really matter, right? Because there yeah. was no one really to get them in trouble, right? Like there's no referee to come in and blow the whistle when you are the United States's secret agency. Well, I have to ask, and we're, of course, we're going to get into all the awful, awful things they've done over the years and are still doing, but has there ever been an instance throughout history where the CIA has like sort of accidentally done something that we would consider good? Oh, I mean, yeah. I mean, um, well, like, again, this is another, this is a thing that's tough with talking about the CIA because like, especially in the second half of the 20th century, they were, what things that they were doing or the money that they were supplying got to so many different parts of the world that you could kind of see their influence everywhere if you want to. And to treat that as somehow like toxic, like you could trace it back to some evil original intention is usually a mistake because sometimes they were just throwing money all over the place and it ended up doing something that maybe they wouldn't have weren't trying to do or didn't really care if it happened. Um, You know, like who, you know, I think a lot of people like the Dalai Lama, he definitely got like CIA support for a long time. This was a big project. Um, does that mean that he, like, he got worse than he was? And, you know, you know, he comes from a strange society um, uh, in the first place. You know, and then like the really famous one is all the like socialist um, and literary magazines funded by the CIA in, in the Cold War, like the, Congre- the Congress for Cultural Freedom. And like, does that this podcast? Mean- yeah. This, this, <laughs> I mean, like yeah. we uh, like 
I definitely think that in 25 years, we'll look back on something that's happening in 2021 and find out, oh, actually that turned out to have been, you know, funded by maybe not the CIA, but somebody you wouldn't oh, think yeah. of. Like that's the nature of COVID op- operations. And the fact that that is true is the kind of thing that leads people to have insane conspiracy brain because like... <laughs> mm-hmm. The uh, stuff there's, that there's no way to prove anything isn't the CIA at any time, yeah. especially well, yeah, a Twitter I'm... account that you really hate right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I think I say this in the book. I don't know if I do, but like a lot of times in the 50s and 60s, the people that made claims that we know we now know to be true were engaging in wild conspiracy theory at the right. time, right? Like yeah. anyone at the time would have laughed at them and be like, "What are you talking about? You're just making this up. You're just pulling this and connecting it to that." And that is what they were doing, but they just happened to be right. Now, of course, mm-hmm. there was other people coming up with other, all other kinds of wild theories and they were wrong. So like, you never know how to differentiate those two. And this is like, I think the, the real problem, not the only real problem, but one of the, the, the many long-term consequences of having a world like ordered to too large of an extent by covert operations that everybody starts to mistrust everything. Right. You know, um, I was running this episode by my mother, as I often do, and uh, she did not understand why I was interested in having a CIA episode. She didn't see how that was relevant to politics right now. I think a lot of people think that way because the CIA has done their job. You know, it's hard to pin anything on the world's foremost spy coven. And so it's kind of hard to peg where where they are in the landscape of modern politics. But I guess the reason I wanted to cover this is the world we live in now is very much the product of the end of the Cold War and the uh, political shapings that were happening in the last 50 to 100 years. Right. And those were very much decided a lot by intelligence agencies, especially this one. So they have their fingers in all of the puddings. If you have a pudding, it is it has been fingered. Yeah, they well they baked the they baked there's they cut other people's fingers off and baked them into the pudding and you're oh. eating you're eating the finger. Yeah. You're you're eating the finger, it's finger pudding. Yeah, absolutely the world that we live in, that the world that we we were that we inherited at the end of the Cold War is one that was to a real large extent created by Cold War uh, interventions led by the CIA. And then also it still exists, still, still it's a hugely important agency, right? And I think one of the more interesting things that happened in like the, the Trump era was the propensity of like sort of mainstream NPR, maybe MSNBC liberals to run to the intelligence agencies as some kind of bulwark against Trump, right? To be like, oh, come on TV, like this guy's from the CIA. He, he really knows how to run the government, whereas Trump didn't. Um, entirely forgetting what, the, what these agencies had done just a decade previously when we invaded Iraq, um, responsible for the left's deaths of hundreds of thousands of people based on lies, um, ran secret torture prisons throughout the world, uh, refused to accept international law. And then again, like secret, this like these secret torture prisons, you can trace back to some of the more salacious stuff, like uh, probably your listeners know about MKUltra, the, mm-hmm. the, the CIA program to, to try to use LSD and all kinds of other crazy techniques to um, control people's minds. And like certainly the stuff in the war in Iraq built upon the knowledge that was built, built upon the knowledge that was gained, drugging, torturing, and murdering people by, in the 50s and 60s under MKUltra and associated programs. 
Absolutely. If you like secret torture prisons, you will love this episode because we're going to go into it. I think you've really hit the nail on the head here. This is the curious part of the CIA right now and their reputation is they're big with the Ashton Kutchers of the world and the John Krasinski's and they make Jim eyes at Donald Trump. And so aren't they on your side? Um, I thought it would be unfair to characterize the CIA without reading their blurb about themselves on their newly designed website. I encourage everyone to check out. A lot of jobs available on there. Well-paying jobs. They do. They have a very <laughs> funny stipulation about how much they will investigate you if you do apply to work there. But um, I hear it's a great opportunity for a diverse workforce. So I got the blurb up. It says, this is, this is the description of themselves, the CIA. As the world's premier foreign intelligence agency, the work we do at CIA is vital to U.S. national security. We collect and analyze foreign intelligence and conduct covert action. U.S. policymakers, including the president of the United States, make policy decisions informed by the information we provide. Which is just such a perfect... Crystallization, uh, crystallization of everything they want to be seen as, right? Because they yeah. have three words: conduct covert action, sandwich nightly, in the, nicely in the middle of this, and then they end with "we have nice news do- dossiers for the president." Isn't that yeah? Helpful? This, yeah. I mean, this was a, a real contradiction that goes went back to the very beginning, right? Because it's called the Central Intelligence Agency, and like the big main official reason for it existing was just to provide the president the president with the latest information from around the world. Like it was supposed to be kind of like a wire service or even so like, you know, Twitter um, for the president. And then there was this other side that often was doing things that they really were not supposed to be doing or operating in a way that nobody was going to find out if they were doing things they weren't supposed to be doing. And these things have always been at odds. I also like you also stumbled on like one of the like little tricks they use to like signal that you really are a CIA insider. Like they like, they don't say the CIA. They, say, they love to say, oh, well, CIA does this instead of the CIA. It's like when journalists <laughs> like say, like when journalists say like copy instead of like words or articles yeah. or whatever, just like <laughs> Very totally, totally pointless, yeah. totally pointless sig- signaling. Yeah. But um, when so they refer to, to uh, Gina as instead of director Haspel. Shows that you really know. <laughs> Just yeah. color team. Yeah. You're talking to somebody with a history degree and they keep talking about Genghis Khan and you're like, come on. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's great. That's great. Yeah. Or like deck, you know, head deck, like instead of head, you know, like, Instead of just saying headline, the journalists write H-E-D, like to show off they're in the club, you know? <laughs> yeah. Wow, you must be smart. It's a very capital... You use a lot of capital letters. You must be a very intelligent person. I tried <laughs> submitting a story for one, once for a publication. I just wrote interior, and they didn't know what I was talking about. So I tried. But. Wow. <laughs> they don't know what they missed. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That should have worked. <laughs> I have a little blurb here about the actual creation of the CIA. So the CIA comes as a development after the OSS in World War II. Um, and they're officially put into law in 1947 in the National Security Act, which authorizes the CIA to carry out, quote, functions and duties related to intelligence affecting national security and use all appropriate methods in that pursuit. So right yeah. from the word go, you have a blank check to go ham on the world. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a pretty wide remit, right? The timing of this is is very interesting, right? Because as you know, the United States is actually much older than 1947. And when the US government emerged from World War II as by far the most powerful country on earth, just really far ahead of the Soviet Union, Europe's destroyed, the formerly colonized peoples of the global South just picking up the pieces as well. They didn't have 
MI6. They didn't have the kind of globally active um, and sort of skilled imperial secret agency that the British had, right? And so from the very beginning, there, the, the U.S. was kind of this like, you can I think it's kind of helpful to think of the U.S. as like a teenage hegemon that like is given the entire world when they're not quite mature enough to figure out how to do it, right? Mm -hmm. So in the early years of CIA or this, you know, in the early years of the CIA, um, you see a lot of blue blood Protestant elites pulled into this young agency given huge amounts of money and they're all, they all have a kind of a uh, inferiority complex vis-a-vis uh, -vis MI6 and like these like polished English gentlemen that have been doing evil maintenance of empire for centuries, right? So this, the, this, this dynamic is really, uh, this comes up over and over where the English know what they're doing, but they don't have enough money because their continent was destroyed by two, mm. two world wars. And the Americans have no idea what they're doing and they have a lot of money. Mm -hmm. And so like in the early years of, um, U.S. hegemony um, around the world, like far beyond the borders of the the parts of North America that we conquered, you see kind of like this like toddler imperialism, where you do stuff that, which is just like you know we put Christians in charge of South Korea and South Vietnam. Like a more experienced imperialist would not pick somebody from a minority religion to run a country as a vassal, right? Like this mm. is like stupid stuff you don't do. So from the beginning, it was like this interesting dynamic of like very dumb, but rich agency staffed with blue blood, like wall street lawyers, basically. Yeah. A lot of wall street lawyers, Alan Dulles famously is from uh, Sullivan and Cromwell. Mm -hmm. You, you have a like very tight boys club going on inside of the agency. And even to the point where you get these funny situations where like Sidney Gottlieb who masterminds MK ultra and uh, essentially like, kidnaps people all over the world and feeds them drugs until they go insane feels right. uncomfortable and out of place at the office because he's not one of the good old boys yeah it um, was rare it was rare to not have gone to like Groton and then yale and then been in the correct secret society at yale it was that kind of a an organization yeah you could it was easy to be an awkward turtle at this at this phrase <laughs> of the cia but hopefully mm -hmm. we've moved beyond there now again on their website it looks like a great place anyone can work Check yeah, yeah, it very, out. Very diverse. Yeah. Incredible. So diverse. now, yeah, but by diverse, does that mean now they're letting people in from like Cornell or Hofstra? Or like some <laughs> I of the lower tier Ivies? I think, I don't, I don't know. I think they love, they love good universities, but I think that, yeah, I don't know. I don't have, I don't know. I know they, they recruited at my university, but I didn't go to like a really good one. So I mean, I think they're probably just everywhere now. I don't know. I don't yeah. know. I think a good wonder... litmus test is if you can get onto like Saturday Night Live as a writer, you can probably get onto the CIA. <laughs> well, there's oh, that's yeah. like a closed loop. It's the same, it's the same yeah. circle. Yeah, it's, redu it's redundancy. It's the same thing. What do you? What's the difference? There I mean, is I literally. Wouldn't... I talk about this a lot on the show, but there is like literally like an insane correlation of intelligence families that have like high, like adult professional improv students and stuff like that because. <laughs> It's rich kids and stuff like that. Like Johanna Houseman, that lady who uh, yeah. made that video for the New York Times about why we should, you know, do a coup in Venezuela is like related oh, right. to Juan Guaido and shit. And <laughs> she's just in like improv class. Or to one of his advisors. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, but like she, I, when I made that video, I had people go like, what? That's I, I was at an open mic with her like a few days ago. I was <laughs> trying to overthrow the government. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, I, 
Yeah, it's like it's what you do when you're at the absolute top of of like you know like uh, of economic capital. Like you only want to do something like you don't care about money at all. You're trying to do something that gets you some clout, right? Like you get to be a secret agent or famous or. Yeah. I mean, yeah, they've absolutely funded some like new school graduates who are just completely clueless about the whole thing and are like tanking whatever <laughs> cause they've hitched themselves to with their weird performance art or something. Maybe <laughs> I want to live in the world with know. the new school CIA. It sounds like a much <laughs> wackier place. I want to be there. If they really want intellectual diversity, they should start hiring the guys who work at stand up comedy on Facebook. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, car wash Tony. He's, a, he's an op. I knew he was an op. Everyone is named Tony. <laughs> Tony Brooklyn. Do you guys ever beat him? All right. Now I'm oh, yeah. Um, Big time. He's an essay, but yeah. <laughs> Let's move okay. On. So you, you, you have this new fledgling organization uh, with the with the whole future is open for them. And um, a lot a lot of the uh, initiatives they end up directing end up shaping the Cold War. And the Cold War is taught in schools. As a general snippet, uh, the idea is you have a uh, a sequence of proxy conflicts that are between the United States and the Soviet Union, and they're right. kind of indirectly fighting over the rest of the world because it's not safe for them to fight each other. Do you think that's accurate, or is that intentionally misleading? It is accurate to say that the people that suffered in the Cold War were not Russians or Americans. Um, but I think that uh, it is not it is it is a bit misleading if often left unsaid to assume that this there was a symmetry between the United States and the Soviet Union in, in their power at the beginning of the Cold War and what they wanted. So, as I said, the, the Soviet Union was much less powerful than the United States. Um, the Soviet Union had lost huge amounts of people to the Nazis. Um, Stalin, while being obviously a very ruthless and cynical leader, understood how weak he was. He also actually really believed that capitalism would lead the Western imperialist powers to go to war with each other and destroy themselves on his own. He mm-hmm. thought, he did not think he needed to do anything. Um, he did not have this idea that I'm gonna go out and antagonize the West or conquer the whole world. He ended up solidifying his position, of course, in Central Europe and forcing a version of Stalinist communism on um, the countries of the Warsaw Pact, like you know East Germany, uh, Poland, you know? But it was not the case that he was trying to, like, destroy America. Um, And it is also not the case that the Soviet Union was intervening abroad the same way the United States was. Again, the United States, like I alluded to this earlier, the United States conquered itself, right? Like North of like U.S. imperialism started in North America. Mm -hmm. And then it um, uh, we expanded a bit to the Philippines and Caribbean. but Latin America was always seen as a place where the United States was allowed to decide on which outcomes were acceptable. America's backyard. Conti- yeah, and this continued in in the Cold War in in a different way. Yeah, America's and- a yimby. Yes, in my backyard. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's, that's right. And so um, I think what's wrong about the the narrative from the beginning is one that there was some kind of symmetry, and and two. Um, the idea that all the bad things were happening on, on the Soviet side. I think you can make it a, a credible case that something closer to the opposite was true. Um, and, uh, you know, in Latin America, of course, where we, we, we intervened the most heavily, like you can, there's no, there's no significant um, cases of the, of, of, of the Soviet Union doing something like we did, like overthrowing a government or, you know, uh, 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 organizing death squads or killing, hundreds of thousands of people. Often, 
the Soviet Union in Latin America would instruct the communist parties active there not to cause trouble because the mm-hmm. Soviet Union for almost all of the Cold War was enti- was very afraid of provoking the United States. Yeah. The the United States was seen as a very aggressive uh power which was easy to provoke. It was like don't like don't fine if you if you have a communist revolution in Cuba like oh okay we'll figure out a way to make this work but like they didn't ask for it and in Chile and Brazil and all these other places they very much were happy to let the United States control things so um yeah like i think it's important to remember that we were the most powerful country by far and the war i would say the cold war is more precisely fought between the first and the third world than between the first and the second so like mm-hmm. it was more the united states insisting upon a certain vision of post-colonial independence for the peoples of the global south rather than like the two superpowers going at each other right yeah, so the framework really, is misleading so i thought was really interesting reading your book uh was about the immediate aftermath of world war ii and how you know living in america the narrative is a certain thing and so you just tend to make all these assumptions about um yes stalin sort of ordering these communist parties to do certain things in, in reality though like the communists in like uh, greece and italy and stuff like that were being told to stand down by him and then just sort of yeah. going and doing these things on their own but then from the american perspective they still just connect the dots anyway and tell people like yo know, stalin was making these people you know fight for communism over here so we have to get them so the whole thing kind of just blows up in his face anyway stalin's yeah. favorite move is doing the project's runway technique where you show up at a country torn by civil war and you go to the communists and you say make it work and then you come back in 20 years yeah it's very much yeah a series of like revolutionary parties and other uh countries like begging almost for help from the soviet union and yeah they're they have to audition and only one gets it and they have to yeah d- submit to his whims and sometimes after the fact you have people trading weapons right or, or buying weapons from the soviets but that's that's always after the fact right that they're not really supporting these upheavals it the was, best yeah, example it's, it's, of this i just i just want to throw this one thing out the best example of this is when he tells the chinese communists to work with chiang kai-shek yeah, yeah, World yeah. War II, and then they are slaughtered like dogs in the streets. Yeah. yeah, no, this is, and this isn't a really important, I mean, this, this sets China in a sense on its current path t- until today, right? Because part of the common term, the common, the communist international's line at this point was that um, communist uh, movements in quote unquote, semi-colonial um Societies like China were supposed to help in the construction of capitalism and then much later somehow moved to socialism. And, you know, uh, the communists in China work with the nationalists and they're slaughtered. They kill perhaps a million people. And to, like that changes who, who Mao is and what the Chinese Communist Party decides to be because they decide like, no, we're going to be very wary of this possibility happening ever again. And like this kind of self-defensiveness, if you want to be like cynical or very radical, is perhaps why they still exist and people like the Indonesian communists do not, right? Like, and even after World War II, Stalin was not excited about Mao clearly uh, like on the way to winning <laughs> winning the, the Chinese civil war. He was mm-hmm. not like coming in to try to take China. He, again, he was acting very cautiously. I mean, in a sense, this is part of what Stalinism is, yeah. is, is treating, treating the communist movement essentially as the, um, as the you know socialism in one country yeah and then and then treating uh everything as subservient to the national interests of the soviet union 
um, and hoping in the long term that will sort of work out that you're going to make it through this intermediate phase. But often, like, yeah, like you said, turning, you know, turning away when the Greek leftists are like, want to keep fighting the British and the monarchy, but then Stalin just says, no, like I made a deal with the West and like, that's not your place in history. Like, let them kill you. Yeah, you get into this. Sorry, you go, Jake. I was going to say, when uh, when you, you get to Stalin saying, like, oh, it's not worth it because, uh, you know, they're going to call me a communist like it, it, or they're going to, you know, link us together. It just kind of oddly reminded me of, like, the Democrats when they say, like, oh, we can't do $15 an hour because they're going to call you a communist. It's like, well, they're going to call you a communist anyway. And with this Stalin in this particular situation, if you go back in time, you'd want to tell them, like, they're going to attack you anyway, you know? This was, yeah, I mean, like, we don't have, like, good sourcing on this, but some Russian historians about Stalin from 1945 to 1949 indicate that he was surprised. Like he did what he thought he, he thought he followed the deal and he was very shocked to find out that the Americans just pretended that he didn't. Well, there's so many instances of that throughout (laughs) history. You could let me cue like Gaddafi or whatever, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, if you want to be a like really um, realistic, like in the, in the, like, the foreign policy or like the international realist school about all this, like the United States had more power after world war two. And they just sort of like took a bunch of steps forward into this vacuum that was created by world war two. Cause they hadn't been torn apart the way that Europe had. Most right. So even if Stalin wanted to help his hands would be pretty, pretty well tied. Yeah. Yeah. There, I mean, there's, there's like, there's like, if you want to emphasize like the personal side of politics too, there's the possibility that FDR's death changed things that Truman took a different approach than, than FDR would have. But like, you know, in the world that we actually live in, Stalin did not push for the Greek leftists to, to continue the civil war, but the United States still used that to launch basically what we call the cold war. Um, right. And even though Stalinism was rejected very publicly by Khrushchev in 1956, and after that, there was no more significant use of mass executions in the Soviet Union. We did uh, employ mass, mass executions in our mm-hmm. um, in, in countries that are allied to us in precisely that period from, you know, starting from 1953 in Guatemala and moving on to 1990, um, I would say. So we ended up doing the things that we claimed that they were doing, but they weren't. Um, and right. uh, again, often, often the the Soviets were very just like, "What you know? What do you want? Like, what do we? What can we do?" And it, the answer was always really nothing. Well, it, it, it seems unfair to charge Stalin with saving the rest of the world from America after World War II. Yeah. Though the Soviet Union is already so big, like how much how much more of you know Earth can you you know cover? Oh no! Yeah, yeah, he felt. I mean, he felt very um, uh, spread. He spread. He was spread very thin. He was very not. He was very. You know, he he felt that he was spread very thin. He also was worried about attack from the West, which is why he, you know, to the great detriment of a lot of the peoples of Central and Eastern Europe, thought that he needed to establish a buffer. But again, he didn't want that buffer. To, he didn't want the countries of Central and Eastern Europe to be like Stalinist. Hmm. He, he just he just wanted to maintain sort of a a rough alliance of sort of whatever social democratic or who it didn't matter. But as the cold war got more intense, he like insisted on control for that buffer, but he had no, there was never any idea that he was going to invade Western Europe, which was the, the, the common sense in Washington and and Britain for the cold war. Well, Greece, I think is actually a pretty interesting place to, to zoom in on. Uh, Could we talk a little bit about the, the Truman doctrine, which, was uh, originally sort of um, used to justify intervening in Greece. And then like Truman's whole 
trajectory as someone who who began the CIA in many respects and then later in his his post presidency went went on to speak out against it. Yeah, I mean um the this the the case of Greece is basically not much more than I already said like um the the there was Greek leftists uh you know Marxist uh communist uh, groups that had fought against um, the not the very horrible Nazi occupation in mm-hmm. Greece, um, and when World War II ended, they didn't want to stop. They wanted to take control rather than let the British reassert um, power with you know the the uh, monarchy, um, um, the right wing monarchy that it, it favored. Um, and Stalin did not want this to happen. He had made a deal at the Yalta Conference to leave that part of Europe to the quote unquote West, and the fact that the communists kept going was what was used by uh, Truman in the first speech that established sort of the Truman Doctrine, which is I'm allowed, we're allowed to fund and help enemies of communism around the world. Now, an interesting thing about the CIA at this moment is in the beginning, their task really was to take on communists, right? Like the countries of Eastern Europe that were firmly within the grip of, of Moscow and you know, in, in, in what we would call the second world at the time. They failed repeatedly. Um, they were essentially just sending waves of people to their death in countries like Albania and Ukraine, and then finding out that they were that there were spies everywhere, and then still continuing to do it. They really failed to crack countries that properly had armed communist um, governments. And that, is a, that explains to a large extent why they did turn to the, the third world, to the, to the global south. They, they couldn't, you know, they couldn't get, crack the actual Soviet Union and its allies. So they turned to places like Iran and Guatemala to, to try to make waves um, and sort of fulfill this, this um, you know, to carry out this mission that had been, had been handed to them uh, in the late 40s. It's easier to score with no defense, man. It's just as simple as that. Uh, yeah, well, you were also saying about the like their them versus the Brits earlier. That the Brits had this like you know history of having an intelligence agency and espionage and stuff. It's, it's also true of the Russians. I mean, they yeah, got all these fucking they knew what they were doing and shit. Yeah, they knew um, what they were doing. I mean, uh, like not only did the did Imperial Russia have a pretty like intense uh, advanced spycraft, let's say the Bolshevik Party itself spent decades literally underground like doing entirely clandestine organization the russians knew what they were doing the british knew what they were doing the americans were new on the scene and had a lot of money and they wanted to like make a splash and again these were like the culture matters because these are like ivy league guys these are guys that want to like succeed they want to like show off to their friends and to their bosses when they're given a job they want they're like believe that winning validates them or whatever they really want to somehow prove that they were worth that they were worthy right they like brought this like very american approach to life that is like essentially high school sports yeah it's like like, uh, espionage as a practice is like skateboarding at a high school or something in america yeah or like being yeah shows up with a bunch of shit his parents bought him but he doesn't actually know how to do it you know yeah or like being the like now like i'm from california being like the Catholic school that wins the football championship every single year because they just pay all of the best kids from the city to be on their football team. Yeah. yeah um, and also worth noting, raging alcoholics. So that definitely contributes <laughs> to the like shoot your shot ideas going on at the <laughs> office yeah, over f- there. Uh, a lot of toxic masculinity in the in the early <laughs> CIA. 
We got to stop it, folks. Nobody was yet. Hold the CIA accountable. (laughs) No, but it really was. It was like, yeah, they would have, they would all meet in Georgetown. They would get, some of them would get like blind drunk. Um, And uh, again, something that was really worrying to me when I came across this is that they like, they thought James Bond was really cool. Like they- so funny. (laughs) They they, like loved James Bond books and like passed them out and like bragged to their kids about how they were like that, you know? Those books are comedies. They're like a satire, but they're, it's like they're reading them like, no, this is fucking cool. (laughs) But the guy, Ian Fleming, he was in, uh, was he in OSS? I, I think it was like in the British, whatever the precursor to MI6 was. Right, but he, yeah. Well, my six been around for a really long time. Uh, okay. Was he in? What, I don't know. Let's see. What Ian Fleming was he in? Maybe like. Uh, Who's actually in my five? Intelligence. He's Q. Actually, <laughs> there is a Q in his book. Yeah. Who is? He's Q. JFK he was, Jr. Yeah, he was naval naval intelligence for okay. Britain. Yeah, which is again, that's that's like real empire shit, right? Like the British yeah. Navy ran ran the whole world for a very long time. So to kind of uh, refocus the conversation here, I think a lot of people are generally aware. You know, if you talk to someone who reads the CIA in the 50s up until now has been up to murky stuff or even if if they're of this particular political persuasion, bad stuff. But right. I don't think most people can put a name to the operations or really tell you specifically what a lot of the CIA did, which, again, mm-hmm. is on purpose because they're a spy organization. Um, so I want to try to go through some of the operations they pulled off the big ones. We're not going to get to all of them because there's a million. Um, and anybody just chime in with anything, you know, about these, uh, the, this is the big famous one at the start of the cold war operation paperclip was when, uh, the CIA tried to pick off all of the Nazi. Yeah, they did not, they, they did not try. They, they got whoever they wanted, but yeah, they, yeah, they, they, they very successfully tried to, <laughs> to get all of the Nazi rocket scientists. And I didn't know this until reading Poisoner in Chief by Stephen Kinzer, which we, is one of the books I read for this. They also were picking up human experiment doctors. Like, yep. Yep. The, the guy who ran Unit 731 in Manchuria for Japanese, which is yep. like all of the human centipede experiments, we got him right away. Like we had yep. a bunch of those guys. Yeah, this was this is another. I mean, I really recommend all of Kinzer's books, but uh, Poisoner in Chief, he really he really um, lays out how at Nuremberg they made sure to find people enough people guilty, but a few people they made sure that they were not found guilty so that we could hire them and then continue the experimentation on human beings. Right. Because it's the story is often sold like, Oh, we needed them for their rockets, you know, so we could have supremacy for military and space, but it's, it's not just that because their work directly gets transported over to the MK ultra program later. And Mm -hmm. then we are essentially with United States taxpayer money running our own Nazi experiments with our government. And torturing people to death like a lot of people around the world. So there's black sites in Germany. There's one, um, a really famous case up in, I think it's near Hamburg, um, taking, I think there was a lot of uh, Korean um, prisoners of war. And it was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like these are expendable people. We're going to perform human experiments until they die and then bury them out in these countries that we essentially run now. Um, And they were, yeah, from paperclip, they were pulled into operations like Operation Artichoke and Bluebird. Um, Artichoke is like the pre um, MK Ultra um, uh, operation, which uses like torture and mind control techniques on um, expendable people. 
It's interesting the way they go about it, too, because the the idea generally, if you're the paranoid CIA agent's mind, is that the communists, for whatever reason, Alan Dulles convinced himself, have already mastered mind control and you're catching (laughs) up. So... (laughs) And, and like, obviously, in retrospect, you're looking at people who were just obviously beat up by slobs in a back room for 30 days and then had to give forced confessionals. And that's why the CIA thought they had developed mind control. But our retaliation for that was like, OK, we're going to figure out how to break a human mind and we're going to get to chemicals. But we'll start with just like pulling fingernails off. Like there doesn't yeah. seem to be any kind of like scientific method for this despite the brilliant minds involved it's confusing they tried everything right like they like you said like there's no there's no limit like you can do whatever you want so who's going to get you in trouble and if you're the cia and you're in west germany in the late 40s you run that country same thing with south korea so and you have as much money as you want as you have any many quote-unquote expendable um prisoners as you want so they tried everything they they tried all kinds of different um techniques and project artichoke project bluebird bluebird was because like they wanted the the idea was to get someone to sing like a bird they were trying to like they were trying to come with a truth serum whether or not there was some combination of physical stimulus and chemical stimulus and um (laughs) yeah there was like you know sky's the limit just try everything because we won world war ii and these countries aren't going to say anything to us oh this is also worth pointing out one of the precursors to mk ultra is mk naomi which yeah. is Andrew's girlfriend. That's true. <laughs> yeah. He likes to mention that too. Yeah, um, he does. But- Operation Paperclip, by the way, that's where uh, that paperclip from Microsoft Office came from. He's a Nazi. Yeah. Don't trust him. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. You can't hear it, but he has a German accent. Where was yeah. he in 1943? <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, during this time, you have like fascism has been defeated. And this is uh, front of the show. Uh, Daniel Bessner has pointed out that a lot of like American scientists who were kind of working in defense intelligence were more of a radical persuasion. Was there some kind of tension there in the, in the federal government between uh, fervent anti-communists and um, anti-fascist Marxist uh, scientists? Well, um, there was a distinction. I'm not sure if there was a tension because Sidney Gottlieb himself was in something, I forget the name of the organization, you can look it up, but the man who ended up doing MKUltra was in like the Young Socialist League or whatever, mm-hmm. right? So there was- Trot. Yeah, yeah well, I think Always. it was, I, I imagine, I don't know what he was, but I imagine um, a lot of scientists would have been of, of a more, well, I mean, the CIA was very liberal itself. Mm. The CIA was not like knuckle-dragging right-wingers. They were, hmm. they were cosmopolitan- Adley Stevenson supporters. Yeah, they were cosmopolitan liberals. Um, they were the kinds of Americans that liked to be proud of, like listening to opera and, or, you know, going, you know, going to the plays and stuff. And um, early Hamilton, they saw <laughs> yeah, it they before like, anyone they else. Saw everyone else. So, but people like Gottlieb um, and almost everybody active in the American government by the late '40s and early '50s, regardless of what their personal politics were, they believed that they were increasing human knowledge for the US government, which was more or less the good guy. So they were able to justify all this as like, well, yeah, I might be torturing somebody to death every single day, but um, it's science and it's science in the pursuit of helping the good guy win. And um, the fact that like, I think even liberals or socialists could believe that is indicative of how dangerous that kind of blind jingoism is. Because if you believe that your side's good without really investigating 
if that's true, and you believe that any, any you know anything that will help your side wins uh, is worth it, then you end up performing human exper- experiments on human beings and throwing their 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 bodies in a mass grave in Germany. Right, because these aren't a few operators who take out these big projects. I mean, MK Ultra had Huge. cooperation from like a major hospital in every city and uh, and tons of universities, Columbia, Alan Dulles's own son, after he gets wounded in Korea is essentially delivered to one of these psycho doctors who just like tries to break his mind for the rest of his life. Yeah. Um, And then an operation, yeah. Operation midnight climax, which was the use of sex workers (laughs) and uh, you know, like John's, I don't know what the like politically correct way to say John, like men who are hiring sex workers in New York. Customers. Yeah. Customers. The um executive producers. This, <laughs> this relied this relied on the um collusion with NYPD, right? Because they had to be like, oh yeah, whatever happens like over there, don't just like let everyone go. Let every single person go. This is CIA stuff. Don't worry about it. I think it was like in like the Lower East Side. I mean, like you can even like go to the place where they did Operation Midnight Climax. But yeah, they they got Prisons, Ugh. prisons, universities, uh, uh, hospitals, and police departments—all to to help out. But who were they? Who were they getting with with Midnight Climax? What was that exactly? So Midnight they Climax were, was like the sex yeah. edition of MK Ultra. They were they oh, were they dosing were people up with drugs, okay. and then yeah. So there was there was two there was bases in San Francisco and New York where they would kidnap, sort of what the CIA considered low life people often like black men, drug users, they would lure them into these apartments. They were run by the CIA with secret cameras set up in the next, I mean, it sounds like you would make this up with secret cameras in the next room, drug these people with LSD and see what happened. Right. Like keep them there. Try to see how you could um, influence regular civilians with the surprise use of LSD or other drugs. Midnight Climax was the version of this where they would also involve sex. So they would be having sex or about to have sex. They would get them aroused. These were men that thought that they were going to prostitutes, but it turns out they were kidnapped by the CIA for human experimentation. And then, yeah, this was like on, you know, totally done. Like this is the first Airbnb. (laughs) Yeah. There's also, I mean, it's funny because they do get kind of close to a truth serum with that, but the closest they get to it is like, oh, these sad men tell the women they love anything they want. <laughs> it's yeah, like, yeah, they, you don't need science for that. That's yeah. not. Yeah, no, they, they end up, they end up like telling everything about like their lives or whatever, but they don't, you know, they don't. Yeah, but in the end, it turns out you can't get people to do something they don't want to do. They, I mean, this is at least the 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 best access we have to the findings of MK Ultras. No matter how hard they try, whatever combination of drugs, you can't get people to do like a Manchurian Candidate thing where they like kill someone they don't want to kill and you can't get somebody to be someone that they're not as far as we know it, it didn't work but they, they try you know not for lack of trying and and along the way they did figure out the best way to get people to break down right that's Which what they, they did perfect to, in this and, and that, that it comes to, uh, back in uh in all the black sites in the iraq war is we find out if you throw people in a box and just give them no, no input at all for a week. Yeah, they yeah. freak uh, out and lose it. Or they yeah, become that, the Unabomber. That Ted Kaczynski was one of the subjects. A lot of people were. I mean, this yeah. is something I didn't know until I read the book too, but like basically LSD entered US culture through MKUltra. Like it was not, 
like that some of the early like sort of hippie uh, acid users were connected, like basically the ones that brought it to the wider society got it from this experimentation. There's a huge, so like, if you want to trace it back that way, there's so many people that have some kind of a link one way or another to MKUltra. So dropping uh, acid is imperialist. Let's get that TikTok going right now about it. No, no. Yeah. The, other, the other way to interpret this is, is that the CIA did do something good. <laughs> I think John Lennon said something like this. He said something like, yeah, we, we must always remember to thank the CIA and army for LSD. That's why uh, they brought out LSD to control people. And what they did was give us freedom. Sometimes it works in mysterious ways, but it sure as hell performs thing performs them again, like seems kind of dumb, but yeah, I think he did. He did say that. Yeah. Literally. What a trip, man. Um, this, this was a one project I had not heard about until I read uh, Talbot's book, the devil's Chessboard, on Alan Dulles operation sunrise is kind of the co-companion to operation paperclip where you essentially have uh, American intelligence actively working to set up a new Nazi government in Germany after the war as a bulwark against the Soviet Union. So at that point, you're wondering, like, why do we even have an intelligence agency to go to war with this, these Nazis if all they're doing is helping them the entire time? Yeah, I mean, the, that, that would assume that the, the point is not power, that is some sort of an ideological goal. So if the point is just to maximize... Um, U.S. influence uh, very cynically and coldly, then like it doesn't really matter what the flavor of the government is, right? Like, who was it that said this? Like, you know, I think it was Truman himself or like when he was in Congress, he said, you know, if it looks like the Russians are winning, we should hope they win. And if it looks like the Nazis are winning, we should hope they win. But, you know, as long as as many of them get killed as possible. So, you know, there was, you know, there was very like, we ended up fighting the Nazis, Um but in 1935, you wouldn't have looked at the United States and said, oh, that's a country that definitely hates Nazism. Mm, For sure. Yeah. yeah. Right. And the it booms. is kind of both flavors, right? Because it is practical political power. But then the Dulleses themselves are extremely ideologically tied up with the Nazis. John Foster Dulles, there's this funny little anecdote in the book where uh, in the late 30s, he's still working on his uh, Wall Street board and they have an official announcement that they're no longer allowed to sign documents Heil Hitler at the end with this, their German client. And he cries Political in the meeting. Political correctness gone mad. Yeah, this yeah, is... This <laughs> this Goodness. is this is muffling. Yeah, this is unbelievable. I can't say anything anymore. Um, <laughs> Campus culture. <laughs> um, yeah, no, but he. I think. I mean, I, I. I know that a lot of people really like. So I didn't. People really like to look at Dulles because he ended up being an incredibly powerful figure in the CIA. And yeah, like a lot of you know, if you were in Central Europe uh, in during World War II, you were often like a lot of the OSS guys were like palling around with like kings and queens and and you know the old like like literal reactionary right wing right so um he definitely did not there was no commitment ideologically to like an anti-fascist popular front uh amongst these guys in, in world war ii it's also weird because reading about alan's alan Dulles, alan we're on a first name basis uh his personal experience in world war ii he spends a lot of it just kind of hanging out in burn switzerland yeah. So you, you have the rest of Europe on fire. Then this guy just having cocktail night at his chateau with the other spies. Yeah. So Operation Sunrise kind of blew my mind. And then there's the, there's all of the very direct inputs of American power onto the third world that all have their own cute names. Uh, the overthrow of the Mossadegh regime in Iran is called Operation Ajax. Yep. Um, 
you you have Indonesia, which you talk about at length in your book, and some of these countries have a less direct intelligence uh, manipulation than other ones. Could you talk a little bit about Indonesia and Brazil and the transformations yeah. they went through? Yeah, I think it's really important to remember that, like, to claim, as I do, that U.S. intervention in the global south in the 20th century was incredibly important does not mean that the U.S. was, like, literally pulling strings and like having direct control over every, every every individual actor like the hegemon shapes shapes the um the playing field and defines the rules but doesn't make all the moves right so in some in some cases you have really obvious and sort of uh chaotic intervention and in the early ones uh like ajax in iran and then pb success in guadalajara 54 are pretty good examples of this so like iran was to a large extent, powered by the British, who were traditional powers in this region and often wanted and wanted to keep control of the oil, but then the U.S. Brought, came in, hiring pro wrestlers and like street thugs to just like create chaos and eventually overthrow democracy. Um, in Guatemala, there was the CIA organizing like a kind of a fake rebel force over the border, and they were bombing the palace uh, in Guatemala City, but like with fake bombs to create fear and confusion. Yeah, and that was when there was like. To uh to kind of sell that back to the United States, I just watched a documentary about this. Edward Bernays, who's the nephew mm -hmm. of Sigmund Freud, and invented the field of PR. Well, he uh, invented the field of PR, public relations. Yeah, like focus groups. He came up like with that. the word. At and, least according yeah. to Adam Curtis. Sorry, sorry, I'm done. <laughs> no, no, that sounds absolutely right. No, that sounds absolutely right. Like this, there was a huge confluence of like early like mass media marketing publicity pr agencies and like foreign foreign policy like for sure to prepare the ground for the coup in guatemala united fruit company use sort of like modern press relations techniques to get a bunch of journalists on junkets down to guatemala show them what they wanted to see and successfully get articles into art into publications like time saying that you know guatemala is about to find fall to the communists and whip up uh sort of political will for these interventions like yeah like the, the, the result like they were using these techniques right from the beginning Right. And it also goes back to, you know, the sort of the ruling class element and what the CIA is really designed to do is to be a tool of the, the ruling class. John Foster Dulles was a, a lawyer for UFCO, United Fruit Company. So it's it's yeah, it's just a very small clique of people who are basically uh, trying to control the world. Yeah. And, and now he has his own airport. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's yeah. It's it's uh, yeah. Washington, D.C. is a strange place to be after like doing the kind of work I've been doing the last couple of years. But like, yeah, but even if you, you know, you say ruling class, but even if you have sort of a like very mainstream liberal interpretation of the U.S. government, everybody sort of agrees that in liberal capitalism, the, um, the state is porous to powerful domestic economic forces. Um, and so big companies with a lot of money and a lot of social connections have a huge ability to influence foreign policy. So mm -hmm. like, it's it's interesting to see that you you end up getting to the same place whether you take sort of like a radical critique or you use the sort of mainstream understanding of liberal capitalism We're like oh economic freedom means that the companies with a lot of money get to have their say and it still ends up meaning that to a very large extent the decisions made by the u.s foreign policy apparatus are shaped by the biggest most and best organized companies and those tend to be like commodities importers and oil companies and things like yeah. that yeah no, yeah, I tend to think the state is like the balance of class forces. It's just there's 
it's way the balance is way out of whack. You know, it's it's the one class who decides things and not the other. So through the 50s and 70s, I mean, like the entire beginning of the Cold War, the CIA is kind of trying a little bit of everything out. And then they, they really solidify what works and what works is uh, media manipulation, which they pioneer with Operation Mockingbird, you know, get every everybody in the news to back you up and you're never wrong. Um, they find out that mass executions work, which they aren't the first people to do mass executions. But in the modern era, these are the guys who make that happen for most of the time. There are innovations even in this field. It's really horrible, but it's like it's not just going to a village and killing everybody. What what you see sort of perfected as a technology and we don't have direct evidence of this, but I think the, what we do have is strongly suggestive that they learn slowly that disappearing people is, is a more effective way of, of carrying out political terror. Because if you arrest people and then their family and friends don't know what's happened to them, they are far less likely to rise up. And so you see this happening increasingly after it sort of works in one place. And this is one of the main things that in Indonesia, 1965, I think inspires copycats elsewhere. But it is like, yeah, everyone, you know, all empires have killed people, but like you can actually watch the arrival of a certain technology of killing people in the second half of the 20th century. Right. And so as we round out here, I guess the question I have that I want to reserve for a smarter person, you know, of like you, for example, I don't mean then you like it's a weird nag. Like, yeah, I'm waiting for a better <laughs> guest to ask this question. Um, yeah, no, please. No, I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I guess my the question I have after reading a bunch of these books, which definitely have a particular slant against the CIA, as many of us do, is, you know, how how much of their side of uh, the situation was based in the real world? Would second world like communist intelligence have taken over the world without the CIA? You know, are were they a nefarious threat to freedom in certain ways? I know we're communists here on the show, but like intelligence agencies are their own animal and institution that's, you know, pretty new in world history. I mean, it's a good question. Um, and there's a few kind of counterfactuals you could run based on how you want them to go. And it's so easy to control it based on your own brain that it's hard to do. And I'll do it anyways. But first, what I'll say is that if you read a book called nice. The Very Very Best Men, uh, I think his last name is Evans. Uh, he is a very sympathetic, uh, Evan Thomas, I'm sorry. Very best man, the dairy early, the daring early years of the CIA. He has an incredibly sympathetic portrait of the CIA. And I think he probably got pretty close to the men doing it to write the book. And you kind of come up with the same picture that I was just describing, that this was a people that were given a lot of money and power and sort of threw their weight all over the place. And even if you think like, oh, they were great American heroes or whatever, it's pretty easy to read, even in a sympathetic portrayal, the 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 unnecessary damage that was caused by the way they carried the things out. Now, would the United States have become a, a, a series of gulags uh, if the CIA didn't um, kill hundreds of thousands of peasants in Central America because they because of the banana industry. Uh, no, I don't think that's like, I don't think it was ever possible that like the US was going to fall. Like it, that is really, I think probably um, unthinkable in uh, the Cold War um, broadly defined. Um, what would have happened, for example, in the global South, if in Indonesia, which we didn't talk about too much, if instead of 
intentionally crushing the left every time they did better and better in elections that they allowed for a, a, a real kind of social democracy to flourish, right? So what if you had in places like Guatemala and Indonesia and Chile, the victory of left-wing or left-leaning coalitions within democratic politics and the U.S. just let that happen? Mm-hmm. Now, that's an interesting question. So like then, do you have, as a result of that, a giant wave of other countries in the global South that want to copy those models. And this is often very precisely what the CIA was afraid of. If you look at the declassified documents on Chile, on Guatemalans, on Indonesia, it was often not the fear that there would be some kind of a intensely repressive Stalinist regime that would arise, but that democratic socialist socialism or social democracy could work and inspire sort of like a wave of rebellions against the nascent global order led by Washington. So that's, I think, an interesting experiment to run. If you were to allow like real democracy to take place in the so-called third world, would that have ultimately been bad for America because the rest of the world is not importing or sorry, exporting its uh, natural resources very cheaply and ultimately maybe deciding that the Soviet Union isn't so bad? Would that have ultimately undercut the standard of living of the United States or would it have sort of been better for everybody? Yeah. Um, that is really hard to say. But the idea that like, you know, there's no evidence ever that like the, that Stalin or Khrushchev or Brezhnev were just like really just holding back, waiting for the United States to be weak so they could just take over more of the world. I don't think that was the way it was going to go. Um, but the right question to ask is what happens if you let Latin America have, democ- have democracy in the second half of the 20th century? Does that destroy the U.S. as a hegemon? And, and if so, that means that the, the position as hegemon that we have is sort of un- entirely undeserved. Or would it have even made the whole global system more robust and and sort of like a better world for everyone? Well, I think you can make a pretty convincing case just based on wealth inequality in America alone that all of this extra cash we strip from the third world mostly just stays hidden underground in banks around the world anyway. And you, although you have a guess a smaller GDP and a smaller economy, the real world <laughs> inputs of it, I mean you would still be the winner of world war two. You'd still have a, a living society. I, I have a hard time imagining any kind of apocalypse disaster happening to the United States because, you know, no, Mexico is a social democracy now. Yeah. And that's, no, that's a, a really, yeah. Yeah. Go on. Well, I, I think that's a really important point to remember that. And I feel like it's sort of a trap. A lot of leftists fall into the, the, sort of reinforcing the idea that, uh, American, you know, social democracy, whatever you want to call it, raising the standards of living for working class Americans has to come at the expense of some other country, right? That that's just an imperialist project when it's that's that's reinforcing the idea of nationalism in nation states, right? The economy is a global one. We can have um, we can have shared prosperity around the world. Uh, And sort of a thesis that I'm like a little ambivalent about is um, this, I guess, the Oliver Stone, Peter Kuznick one, which is very much that, you know, what you're saying, that that's what the CIA was afraid of is, is democracy in Latin America. Uh, but that the Kennedys, JFK and RFK, wanted that, too. And that's the reason they got got, regardless of, you know, the Bay of Pigs and some other really nasty things that they did. Uh, what, what do you think of that? Um. I I think I agree that it's a really important point that there's there's not really a lot of evidence that the United States as a people is benefiting um, from 
the, the, the economic and military power that the country has. And a lot of the Indonesians I met that like were growing up in the 50s and 60s, when they like went to America for the first time, they're like, what? Like number one, they're like, whoa, it's even more racist than I thought. Mm-hmm. And number two, they, they would say, wait, this is, the, this is like the richest society in history. Like this is, this is not really that great. I expected it would yeah. be a lot better. And so then that, uh, that age old question, like, you know, is the working class of the United States actually the labor bureaucracy of the uh, of the global system, and like uh, only the only the third world is is the can like power revolution because all of the United States is benefiting from imperialism? That is a really tough one. Um, but uh, the and like I don't know. I see. I see because there has not been really successful social democracy a social democratic project in the global South for a long time. They did not somehow meet, you know, run up against the constraints of the global system, whether that is a very sort of obvious U.S. intervention or just sort of like, oh, there's a debt crisis and then the interest rates go up way higher than you ever thought. And then now you are cutting, you're destroying social services and then you get overthrown or like in Lula, you would do really, really well for a while, but then ultimately the local political forces find a way to crush you. Um, I don't know. That that's a really interesting question. I go back and forth. And on the question of like, you know, what happens if FDR doesn't die? What happens if Kennedy doesn't die? Are those I think you can go back on endlessly too. And I really don't I honestly don't know at all yeah. who killed who killed John F. Kennedy. And like the only thing I'll say about that is that like it's fucked up that we don't know. Like I don't I don't I don't like to choose like one of those theories as to how he died, but it's like, come on. Uh, they it, keep pushing that date back. The, they keep pushing the, it. Why are they doing that? The idea, I mean, the I mean, it's just this giant thing we push in the memory hole. Like this was a very big deal. It seems that by now you somebody would have figured out something. Uh, and as a society, we all just sort of collectively accepted, like, oh no, no, no. Like, um, if you talk about that, you're a wild conspiracy theorist because by necessity, they only allow you enough information to theorize about conspiracies. Um. Rounding out here, does anyone else have any questions for Vincent before we close? I, I guess I have like one really broad question that I think about whenever I think about uh, CIA and intelligence and stuff like that, which is that, um, you know, so we kind of live on this like staggered timeline with them where in the here and now in the present, we're like, are they doing evil stuff? I don't know. And then people sort of, you know, liberals and conservatives and people like that go like, no, no, they're here to protect us. And But then you go, yeah, but every time they declassify something, we find out 10 years ago, they were up to no good, you know, and it's right. uh, we know about COINTELPRO and if and all that stuff we know about uh, now we know about a lot of the horrible stuff that happened during the uh, war on terror um but i guess my question is uh is there like a, a continuity is there just an ideological through line with all of this um stuff going all the way back to uh you know, the Cold War, uh, is that still their bent? And the reason I asked that is because I personally had an interaction with a Homeland Security agent one time who is oh. you know, a different intelligence agent. But um, and, and I know this might be complicated because it's my understanding that a lot of times they don't communicate with each other that well, those uh, agencies. But uh, I mentioned at one point, and I'm, I apologize to everyone for this, but he was putting the screws to me. I mentioned the DSA, and I thought it was really interesting because he said, what is that? And I was like, wait a minute, what? Like, how do you not know what this is? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And my question, I, I guess, whenever I think about that, I'm like, was he lying? You know, and he's actually, they're still like, obviously going to be uh, putting moles in, in organizations like the DSA, or did he, are they moved on to some other like, um, mission in their mind? Like, are they, you know, is it not about communism anymore? 
Uh, I would I would venture that FBI knows what DSA is, and I'll, there's a whole there's a whole lot of FBI guys that know what DSA is. Now Homeland Security, maybe they just kind of sent the uh, you know the, the 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 muscle out. You know who knows? You know like yeah. you can't run an empire requiring that every single person knows what every other part of the empire is doing, right? Like it just it gets too complicated. Like a storm, you know, it's like saying like the stormtrooper like invading like i haven't seen star you know what i'm talking about like i've just seen that before yeah who yeah, yeah. know who Yoda is every is tatooine or whatever if you know are they gonna know that they're about to blow up that other planet back in the death star probably not but like you know they'll have to deal with it when they find out and um yeah. and what i always say when i think that's a really i think that dynamic that like weird staggered timeline time as you put it is like important but also so maddening right because everything indicates that we're going to find out in 2031 that in 2021 they were doing stuff just as bad as 2001 and 1991 and 1981 but if you say that stuff in 2021 you're sort of by definition a crank right <laughs> yeah, because like what are you what are you just gonna make up stuff and just hope it's the right stuff right and um the 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 answer i always give when people talk about like well you know it's cold war is in the cold war over well i say is that like look like the soviet union stopped existing right the the other side in that battle went away like there's some there's like a, a tiny piece of it that still exists in, in russia um some of those organizations were reintegrated but in general all that stuff at least formally was dissolved none of that happened on the other side right like it, this there is a direct line from 1950 to 2021 in the cia and um if there had been some kind of a major reorganizational process where they changed their principles and their goals and their tactics, we would have probably known about it, right? Because they would have told us because they would have been very proud. So I think it's uh, the, I usually err on the side of continuity and um, the historical record rather than on the side of what a self-interested government says about itself. Hmm. Sure. I mean, you can maybe argue that when uh, certain because individual actors in the CIA have so much power when one of them dies or, you know, stops being in control of things, maybe things change a little bit. But uh, yeah, but they were all hired by the last guy. Right. Like, you know, it's not that would that would mean that would be a lot if like the new guys were brought in, you know, in the way that Congress is elected or whatever. Well, they were hired from the website, as we discussed. (laughs) Yeah, it's a great (laughs) website. Check it out. Great, great, yeah, great opportunities. Great graphic design. Looks like some really cool guys. Uh, Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, if we're going to have an intelligence bureaucracy, I think it should be elected. But I guess the question I would close with, I guess, for the for the group is what, what if you don't have it? Right. What if we don't have it? And why do we do have we, to have it? <laughs> do we replace it with anything? Do we even really need any sort of national bureaucracy for intelligence at all? No, I think intelligence. Absolutely. I think any I think any well-run state should be doing as much as possible to know as much as possible. Okay. Right. That, absolutely. Then the question of should we have this particular agency with its you know, horrible reputation, it's horrible history of causing human, human, human suffering around the world. Should we have them doing covert operations to engineer outcomes and other political systems around the world, given what we know about the long-term effects of, of those operations? I think that's an entirely different question.
question. Okay. I mean, at the end of the day, you're asking Darth Vader to take baby Yoda pod racing. (laughs) Yes. Um, But because we are a goth podcast, I wanted to close on the last two paragraphs of David Talbot's book uh, because the CIA is still around. They are still doing things right now. I don't know what they're doing. There's a lot of things they've already done. I don't I don't know anything about Operation Gladio. I, I encourage you to look into all the exciting CIA stuff, but these are the last two extremely goth paragraphs of that book. Nice. Today, other faceless security bureaucrats continue to carry on Dulles's work, playing God with drone strikes from above and utilizing Orwellian surveillance technology that Dulles could only have dreamed about. With little understanding of the debt they owe the founding father of American intelligence, dead for nearly half a century, Dulles' shadow still darkens the land. Those who enter the lobby of the CIA headquarters are greeted by the stone likeness of Alan Welsh Dulles. His monument is around us, reads the inscription underneath the bas-relief sculpture. The words sound like a curse on the men and women who work in the citadel of national security and on all those they serve. Mm. Damn, that is pretty cool. That was like a black magic the gathering card. <laughs> yeah. America has chosen swamp. <laughs> he kinda he kinda got what was coming to him. I mean, it he deserved a lot worse, but he Dying did end of his old life. age. <laughs> Yeah. Well, no, but he took the fall for Bay of Pigs and he also his uh, son got part of his brain blown off in Korea. So he had to like he doesn't care about that. You got to read this book. Um, (laughs) But uh, uh, yeah, it's an extremely goth thing. Check it out. The CIA. Uh, That's going to be it for us this week. (laughs) Vincent Bevins, thank you for coming on. Where can our viewers find you? Uh, Hey, don't don't don't. All right. It's no, no, yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah. You can get the, you know, like, uh, we're still <laughs> trying to get, the, <laughs> yeah, we're still trying to uh, get uh, people to read the Jakarta method if anybody wants to check that out. And then I'm on uh, just Twitter, V I N N C E N T. If anyone wants to find me or ask me anything, I'm, I'm usually, usually around. Yeah, read the Jakarta method. It's great. I'm reading it right now. Go read it. It's great. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Patak Jokes. Anders, where can people find you? At Anders Lee here on Twitter. Uh, I'm at feral jokes on everything. It's an anagram for my name. Our Patreon is patreon.com slash pod America. We do bonus episodes every week. You know how podcasts work. Uh, we have merch, big cartel website. It's in our bio and shit on Twitter and everything. Um, my other oh, podcast yeah. And we have bad. a, we have a bonus episode about the, uh, the Iranian coup, uh, starring Kermit Roosevelt. Yeah. Go back and listen to that. Yeah. All <laughs> kinds of stuff back there. Yeah. A yeah, Punisher a, episode. You know, he, he right. got out of the coup game, right? They tried to get him to do Guatemala in 54, and he said, oh, I don't want to. He was too depressed, right? Something like yeah, that. Yeah, he said, well, he said, like, we should only do. He had, like, well, like, this is, like, everyone that said these reasonable things just got fired. He said, well, like, we shouldn't do it if, if people don't want it because it'll blow up eventually, and that's exactly what happened. Right, and yes, and I forgot to mention, too, real quick, uh, Truman, in his later days, was like, the CIA has gone off the reservation. They're doing too much shit. And uh, Dulles came to his house in Missouri and tried to talk him out of it and like get him to renege. And then he didn't. And Dulles just went to the press and was like, yeah, he's confused. He doesn't yeah. know what's going on. He's a confused man draw yeah. from corn cob pipe. <laughs> um, yeah. Check out all of those things. And uh, 
Hey, Twitch. have a great week. <laughs> we're also on, we also have a Twitch. Please. We got to hype that. All shit. right. Yeah, we're doing stuff on Twitch. <laughs> that's it. Yeah, check out the Twitch slash Pod Damn America. And that's it for this week. It's finished. It's, it's finished. finished. <laughs>